Welcome to the Critique Journal Club Review for December 2012, the last review for the year. Let's start with paediatrics. An RCT published in the New England Journal of Medicine reports on longer-term outcomes in premature infants assigned to early CPAP versus early surfactant. The authors have previously reported earlier outcomes of bronchopulmonary dysplasia or death in the same group and shown that there was no difference in this outcome. This study followed the same group out to 18 to 22 months post-ICU and in 990 of 1,058 infants who survived, there was no difference in the composite outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment. It was a two-by-two design study, and they also looked at higher versus lower oxygen saturation. What they showed was that the higher oxygen saturation group had a significantly lower mortality than the low oxygen saturation group. With regards to neurodevelopmental impairment, there was no difference in any of the trial groups, that is, oxygen saturations, CPAP, or surfactant. The authors conclude that early CPAP can be considered an alternative to early surfactant in premature infants. There was a small but interesting study published in CHEST looking at diaphragm muscle thinning in patients who are mechanically ventilated. The authors start by telling us that difficulty weaning occurs in 20-25% to of ventilated patients, with 40% of ICU time devoted to weaning from mechanical ventilation. Ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction, which they say is a loss of force generation due to mechanical ventilation, may contribute to this. In this study, seven newly intubated patients in a medical ICU were followed with consecutive diaphragmatic ultrasound measuring diaphragmatic thickness. They found an average decrease of thickness of 6% per day beginning within 48 hours, with an association between high tidal volumes and increased loss of diaphragm thickness. These are very small numbers, and obviously proof in a larger cohort would be required, and risk factors would have to be established, the relationship with outcome determined, and the possibilities of altering muscle loss unclear. Still, it's an interesting area that we haven't heard about before. In the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, A study was published looking at 304 patients randomised to either a brain natriuretic peptide-driven fluid management strategy or a physician-driven fluid management strategy during ventilation weaning. What they showed was that in the BNP-driven group, more furosemide and acetazolamide was given. There was a more negative median fluid imbalance during weaning. There was decreased time to successful extubation, an increase in number of ventilator-free days, and no difference in length of stay of mortality. The effect on weaning time was strongest in patients with left ventricular systolic dysfunction. And finally, there was no difference in electrolyte imbalance, renal failure, or shock. So overall, the authors argue that BNP-driven fluid management strategy decreases the duration of weaning without increasing adverse events, especially in patients with left ventricular systolic dysfunction. 
On a more general level, one could argue that recognising and treating fluid overload associated with systolic dysfunction reduces the duration of ventilation, and that BNP is a tool to help you do this. Again, an interesting and novel application of something that is BNP. On to nutrition. The landscape for nutrition has many areas where there is uncertainty. This 305-patient RCT published in The Lancet examined the effect of supplemental PN given on days 3 to 8 in critically ill patients not reaching caloric targets with enteral nutrition, and this was defined as less than 60% of the energy target. So the target was 25 kilocalories per kilo ideal body weight for women and 30 for men. EN was given using routine protocols, and supplemental PN was given to achieve 100% target. The primary endpoint was the occurrence of nosocomial infections from days 8 to 28. The authors report that the mean cumulative caloric deficit by enrolment was minus 4,000 kilocalories per patient. From day 4 to 8, the supplemental PN group received 103% of their target, while the EN group received 77%. This was highly significantly different and shows that there was a separation of treatment effect between the two groups. The probability of nosocomial infection from day 9 to 28 was less with the S supplemental PN group, it was 27%, versus the enteral group, 38%, p-value of 0.033. There was an associated decrease in antibiotic days in the supplemental group, and this was due to a decrease in urogenital and abdominal infections. Finally, there was no increase in bloodstream infections in the supplemental group. So in summary, a supplemental PN strategy for days 3 to 8 led to achievement of energy targets and was associated with reduced urogenital and abdominal infections and reduced antibiotic days. Undoubtedly, the biggest study of the month was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is a trial of intracranial pressure monitoring in traumatic brain injury. And this is a fascinating study. There is controversy about the management of TBI directed by ICP monitors with the argument that clinical examination and and clinical guided therapy may be adequate. However, although this controversy exists, equipoise in the wealthier countries doesn't exist, making this study impossible to do. So the authors went to Bolivia and Ecuador to find intensivists with equipoise who don't routinely perform ICP monitoring but look after severe TBI. What they compared was, one, ICP monitoring, and this was an intraparenchymal monitor placed as soon as possible and the the ICP treated to maintain a pressure of less than 20 millimetres of mercury in accordance with guidelines. And two, imaging and clinical examination. So in the absence of intracranial mass lesions requiring surgery, signs of intracranial hypertension on imaging or clinical examination were treated firstly with hyperosomolar therapies, optional mild hyperventilation and optional ventricular drainage. Continued edema prompted consideration of the administration of high-dose barbiturates and then additional treatments were required for patients with 
neuroworsening, persistent edema, or clinical signs of intracranial hypertension. So we've got ICP monitoring versus imaging and clinical examination. In 324 patients with severe TBI, there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was a composite of survival and function at six months, survival, length of stay, mechanical ventilation or complications, that is, no difference in anything. The authors conclude that this study does not support the hypothesis that ICP-guided management is superior to neurological examination and serial CT imaging-guided management in TBI. So this is not an argument against the management of raised ICP, rather how ICP is assessed and the subsequent treatment algorithm. So clearly the extension of these results from Latin America to the first world requires careful consideration, and the authors do provide some of this. It is likely that there are differences in pre-hospital care. The intra-hospital care conform with guidelines and the ICU and hospital outcomes were as expected for wealthier countries, suggesting that they did this bit well. Long-term mortality was higher, and that suggests that there are limited resources for this in following ICU discharge. The authors conclude by stating a reassessment of the role of manipulating monitored intracranial pressure as part of multimodality monitoring and targeted treatment of severe TBI is in order. Now, what form this reassessment takes, I don't know. It may well be that this study should be repeated in the wealthier countries in the first world to see if the results are applicable. And finally, let's finish the year with a counterpoint debate presented in chest. The debate looked at the need for anesthesiologists' presence in the ICU for intubation. Now, the yes argument, the author, Jay Walls, argues that the complication rate for emergency intubation in ICU is as high as 54%, and there is an associated increase in mortality for difficult intubation. And subsequently, an experienced anesthesiologist trained doctor would decrease this. The no argument provided by Kay Dorshig, or the not necessarily argument, return to the basic arguments. So one, board-certified critical care physicians are internists, not anesiologists. Two, there are a lot of complications during intubation. Three, anaesthetic presence would lead to better outcomes. And he says this is the premise of the argument for this. What he says is that complications are common in critical illness, regardless of intubator. Intensivists and anesthesiologists each bring distinct skills to the bedside, and it is not clear which skill set is more important. And finally, a structured approach that addresses the known risks of IC intubations is more important than the medical specialty. Having read them both, what do I think? Well, firstly, would a specialist anaesthetist alter the complication rate or the outcome? This is unproven. Two, the de-skilling in non-anaesthetists, if you were to ensure that anaesthetists were always present for intubations, means that they would have to be in-house 24-7. Now, this has a lot of implications, including cost. I think better evidence is required before you move to this model. Three, does the structure of the ICU, closed versus open, and the daytime decision-making influence this? Remember, the authors of this debate come from North America and work in open ICUs.
Finally, what defines an experienced provider? So the authors suggest that 12 to 24 months of anaesthesia experience is the definition, but this is loose as it does not define what experience they get and it's certainly less than what we would consider a consultant and ethodist in other parts of the world. So that's it for 2012. Thanks for listening to the Critique Journal Club wrap-up and thanks for your support for the year. I look forward to talking to you next year. Happy New Year.